Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello, and welcome to the Five Rules of Writing. So this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true about writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether that's the most hilarious sitcom or the most miserable of misery memoirs, these are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. And today I'd like to welcome a great novelist and possibly also the best dressed man working in fiction today. (laughs) Hello to Tony Quinn. Thanks, Ed. That's very kind of you. And it's, um, yeah, if I can if I can be thought the best dressed man, then, you know, I can forget writing, can't I? That, that, that's the, the greatest accolade one can be paid. I'm, I'm not, by the way, but anyway, it's nice of you to say. <laughs> well, you have a new novel out in March, but I'd like to talk to you today, Tony, about uh, your five rules of writing with regard to this magnificent book that you just published uh, called Clop. My Liverpool Romance. So this is a book about obviously a man that you particularly admire, uh, Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp. How did this come about? Um, I'd never written about football before, but um, a friend of mine, an old friend who's uh, who runs an agency, said you should write about Liverpool, and he asked me to write. Uh, about 15 years ago, when Liverpool um, won the Champions League final in Istanbul, the the great game, the great comeback against AC mm-hmm. Milan. I wasn't ready to do it then. And, uh, you know, I was a film critic for The Independent. That was made, that was my living, essentially. And I didn't fancy the sidestep into sports writing at all. But when Jurgen Klopp c- came over in October 2015 to start at Anfield, I suppose my antennae started twitching a bit because I thought... He's he's such an interesting character and charismatic man that it could possibly you know make a good a good story not even a book but just a good piece and then this friend of mine said you've got to write this now and he kept on at me for about two years and eventually I just thought last year in fact at this time last year if it's going to be any time it's going to be now because Liverpool were streaking away with the. Premier League title. We were points and points ahead. And my love of Jurgen Klopp had burgeoned and flourished like the month of May. Um, And I felt this could be the time, actually. And so I started actually during March, just just after lockdown, and found actually was one of the most enjoyable writing experiences I've I've had. Um, I'd not, I'd not written, like I said, about football. I'd never written a non-fiction book. I've written seven novels, but no, no non-fiction. So I thought it was a bit, a bit of a challenge, and it was a bit of a new direction, but um, well, it's an, really, enjo- an enjoyable one. Well, it's certainly you really get the sense of the, the pleasure that you got from writing it. You know, that that pleasure definitely translates to the reader. Thanks. It's a really charming and enjoyable book. But what do, what do you think is the correct? sort of description of this for this type of book it's much more than an appreciation isn't it is it, yeah, is it a hero it's, worship? Um, it's a there's a bit of hero worship um it's a sort of memoir come narrative of, of a manager's life it's it's light on a manager's on on, on Klopp's life 
but it's essentially a book about being a fan. It has a kind of a, a double narrative whereby it bounces between my life, a little bit of my life, growing up in Heighton in Liverpool, um, playing football, my falling in love with pop stars, and then on, on towards you know my life as an adult fan as a, a, a Liverpool fan it's a bit of a melange it's a or a mishmash <laughs> um I I suppose it's um it's a basically it's a fan's notes on a, a man I've come to love and admire and through that is refracted a certain story of of you know of, of being a you know being a a football fan all your you know all your days and why it means something why sport means something to you um it's the most important of the least important things is, is how Klopp described football and I think that's quite true actually um, I mean I think being a fan is a very um especially a football fan it's a very uh, uh difficult thing to really get your hands on isn't it because I've thought about this quite a lot uh and what I what I've been trying to sort of uh, understand is what is it you're actually supporting when you support a football team because it's not the players they come and go yeah it's not the shirt that changes from match to match home or away season to season it's not the ground that can go it's not um you know the uh, the other supporters they come and go so what is it what is it being a football fan interesting question yeah i suppose it's the entity that is liverpool fc um you know i started supporting them in 1972 when my dad took me to Roger Hunt's testimonial when I was eight years old. It was at Anfield, but as you say, you know, it would still be Liverpool if they weren't playing there. Um, it's just a kind of club. It's, it's, um, it's more than a club. It's a sort of, there's a sort of cultish aspect to it really. Um, but the, the team I started supporting the club I started supporting in 1972, of course, is very different now, um, you know, nearly 50 years on. Um, the whole game has changed, um, but there is still the Holy Trinity, which, which is, as Bill Shankly said, it's the manager, the fans and the team. The team, they will be in a constant evolving process they will always change because the world does mm -hmm. and yet this thing called Liverpool being a Liverpool fan is <laughs> eternal and what, what at what point did you start to realize that your feelings for Jurgen Klopp were shall we say more than just professional admiration <laughs> well frankly homoerotic um <laughs> my wife's line by the way I should say straight away was there were three of us in this marriage um yeah, I suppose it became apparent quite quickly that Klopp was a very different creature. Uh, he was, in a way, not like any football manager we'd ever encountered before. Um, he's not just an amazing coach, you know, he's, he, with his tactical nous and acumen. He's obviously quite a strange and intriguing character that's that's how I found him you know it, it wasn't just the big laugh and the the jokes at the press conferences he was he was obviously a thinker and he is much given to you know talking about you know the, the way players evolve and he, he he 
he plainly cares for them more than just as players. You know, he has he takes an interest in them and he takes an interest in the world. Um, you know, he's obviously a socialist. He comes out with his views on Brexit and um, talks immense, immense good sense when when it was needed during mm-hmm. the lockdown, for instance. You know, he knows he's not an expert on um, viruses and he, he, he said you should just follow the, you know, the science and be, you know, look after yourselves and look after your loved ones. And I really admired that in a way because people do look up to him. People look to him for a lead. And given that there aren't any, there aren't many people in public life that we do look to mm-hmm. in that way, there aren't many people we admire in the public sphere. He's, he, he occupies a really interesting position. You know, I, I, I think of him as a, as a bit of a sage. He might laugh at that. Um, and say, wow. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've never really felt as uh, affectionate towards a, a coach ever, I, I don't think. Not it's even quite, Kenny Daglish. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? Because Liverpool have had so many extraordinary managers. But um, anyway, there was a, I wanted to ask you a couple of things about your, you say some really lovely things about your childhood in this book. And one of them was that, uh, uh, it was kind of coming back a little bit to your um, uh, famous stylishness. You say, as a, as a five-year-old, I also insisted on wearing, riddle me this, a kilt, bedecked <laughs> with a mini sporran. <laughs> I've still got that sporran, actually. I don't think I've got the kilt. Yeah, um, who knows where that comes from, uh, Ed? I, I, I don't. Um, I mean, but, Liverpool fans have also had traditionally had a reputation for being, uh, or certainly having a you know a, a component of Liverpool supporters have been right out there stylishly. Uh, you know, they were some of the first to become the casuals. I read a thing about uh, certain Liverpool fans taking enormous dogs to games at one point. Oh, really? I didn't know um, I think, uh, I can't remember which, but it was also a particular breed, you know, perhaps a, I, I honestly can't remember which, what right. it was, but, uh, you know, do, do, you, do you sort of, do you uh, apportion your, your own personal uh, stylishness to coming from Liverpool? Not really. No, not really. Um, I, I don't know where, where my interest in clothes are comes from really apart from my mum my mum was always well dressed um she loved clothes um it, it was never it was never ever associated with being from liverpool um liverpool was much more sporty and it was you know casual lots of fred perry lots of labels liverpool is a place that loves shopping for clothes and and you know it's there was always immense choice in, in Liverpool, but to be honest, I only really, I, I don't know what I was doing. I was probably more interested in Roger Moore and people like that, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, Simon, Simon Templar of the Saint, um, all, all of that kind of thing. I, I just always looked at what people were wearing. And as I, you know, became a teenager, you know, Bowie obviously was a massive influence. Um, it was from all, from all different sources, but it, it doesn't seem site-specific to me as, as regards Liverpool. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Tony, tell us your, uh, give us your first rule of writing. The first rule of writing is um, try to write every day. If you're, I, I'm usually working on a book, so I, even when I don't feel like it, I set myself a target. And 
it's a pathetically small target, but you know, it, I feel better about myself at the end of the day if I've done it. Um, and if I can make sure that I've just done that little bit, I can get the next morning and think, ah, oh, this is great. You know, um, I can sort of tinker around with this. It's there on the screen at least. Um, whereas if you just sort of dicker about, you know, it's it, it's hard to start to get started again. Um, what is your daily target? This is really embarrassing, but it's actually 500 words a day, which is about a page, which is not very much at all. Sometimes it's more. Sometimes, you know, if it's going well, particularly towards the end of a book, you speed up and you could be, you know, 900,000 words, maybe more. But I'm not one of those kind of human dynamos that can get through 5,000 in a day. It just, it just wouldn't happen for me. Um, to be quite honest, it's not writing I enjoy. It's having written you know, that feeling of you've got through it, you've put the words down, um, you can go to bed and let, you know, um, let your unconscious work things out for you. And, you know, if you make that commitment to get to your desk and start writing, things will, you think, you, you usually find that things will follow. And how long does it take you to, to get your 500 words down normally? I'm terrible in the morning. Uh, so, that, you know, it will take me about four hours, maybe maybe a bit longer. But in between those four hours, there'll be lots of, you know, reading around and sort of daydreaming. And I might have to go for a walk. If there's a knotty problem in the plot, then I have to think that through. So it's it's... It's thinking as well as much as writing, but after a while, you just say to yourself, I've got to write, I've got to put this down. You know, I am obliged, you, you, you've obliged yourself by sitting at this desk to get something down on paper or on the screen, as we now say. But that's another thing about the screen. I, I, I hate crossing out. So when I used to write longhand, it was an agony for me because I hated crossing things out. But when you're working, you know, with it, I basically use my computer as a word processor. Um, and I love the fact that you can just edit. The the gift of editing that a computer enables is just wonderful to me. And, and did your, your clock book uh, go a little more quickly then? Yes, it did. It did. The clock book, um, you can write more, I think. Uh, when, when I said 500 words a day, that's fiction. With, with clock, you could write a I, I could write more if I wanted to, because journalism is an easier, not, not an easier thing to do, but it, it has more of a flow to it. As I said, I was a film critic for 15 years, a journalist. It comes from a different part of your brain, nonfiction. And I, I found that the clock book had a flow to it that perhaps fiction doesn't. Um, I wrote, I wrote clock essentially in five months. Okay. And what's your second rule, Tony? Um, second rule is to read all the time. Reading is, is like, to me, it's the oil in the engine. Um, I, I can't understand writers who say when they're writing, oh, I never read anything because, you know, it just gets in the way and it, and it, and it sort of, it, it sort of influences me too much. Well, I don't find that at all. I find writing, great writing, energizing. Um, when I started out, I probably 
was too heavily influenced by the you know the writers I loved and I would constantly go back and forth to them but I think reading is just you know it's it's the juice um and it's inspiring and if you're reading something great uh you think I must try and maintain that standard For, for instance um I'm writing a novel at the moment about um, part of it is set in the film world. A little bit is going to be set in the film world. It's 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 a multi-strand thing. But Rachel, my wife, had started reading the new Rupert Everett memoir. She, in fact, she reviewed it for uh, the Observer, and she said this guy is such a good writer. Mm. I'd never really thought of Rupert Everett much, and I never really liked him as an actor. But I thought because she was so keen on it, and and really sort of compelled me in a way I I started reading his first book which was called Red Carpets and Other Banana Skins and it's brilliant it's absolutely wonderful the standard of prose is astonishing you know he's like a sort of Noel Coward or even a Kenneth Tynan kind of figure and I thought Rupert Everett who knew I moved straight on to his his second one which is called Vanished Years which is also great um and it's just that idea of reading things that are going to top you up and yeah, it genuinely, you know, inspiriting. You think this is the standard I should be maintaining. Okay. I mean, I agree with you about those Rupert Everett books and the new one is absolutely fabulous. Do you know them? Do you yes, know? I do. Yes. Yes. And I read the, uh, the recent, the, the, the Oscar Wilde one quite recently. It's fantastic. Isn't it? yeah. He, uh, he, you know, fed up with the film industry, decides to make his own film starring yeah. him. And yeah. uh, and uh, so makes the film, and then halfway through says, actually, the second half of this book is about the uh, the catastrophe of having made it. So he's in a way he's he is the um, antithesis of you. You say you, the thing for you about writing is having having written. The thing for him about films certainly wasn't having made one. He regrets it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you like them actually, Ed, because you know I, I'm I'm I've been banging the drum for these these books and. Some of my friends just kind of look at me and say, Rupert Everett, you know. But he is genuinely a class act, I think. I completely agree. Now, with um, uh, Klopp, um, when you say reading, what, what, sort of, what reading helped you with, uh, with that particular book? Did it help sort of get, you know, to hear, did you, did you read something that helped you sort of uh, get to the key to his character or um... um i read a couple of biographies um one by Raphael honigstein which is very good and another by elmar neveling um which both you know helpful good not 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 particularly sort of fine prose or anything but but good on the life and good on the career um I read all sorts of different things. I read a lot of Hugh McIlvanny, the sports writer. Um, I read bits and pieces of other biographies, sports biographies. I read a very good book by Gideon Hay on Shane Warne. I mean, again, that was that was to sort of inspire myself as a as a, as a sports writer, really. Um, I think anything can be made interesting if the writing's good enough. I, I wasn't especially interested in Shane Warne. I mean, I love I love cricket. I love Ashes cricket in particular. But I'd never have read a book about Shane Warne if it hadn't been by Gideon Hay. Okay. Um, but to be honest with you, Ed, I mean, a lot of it was 
trawling through YouTube clips, interviews, old matches, um, reading websites, you know, just visiting lots and lots of different Liverpool websites. Um, actually, quite a lot of it was already in my head because I, I, I realised that, you know, one, one thing about supporting a team all your life is that you've accrued all this knowledge about them. Some of it, a lot of it, quite useless. But as it turned out, I, I could, you know, I could talk about games from years ago, goals from years ago, players from years ago, without even having to research them. I just knew about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was quite liberating in a way because I'd never had, I'd, I'd never thought of, you know, turning into a book, something that I would just generally have talked to friends down the pub about. Okay. So you've got to have a target. You've got to read all the time. What's your third rule? The third rule is um, rewrite your stuff. Uh, It's not enough to just throw something down. Um, You need to be a good cutter. You're you're an editor yourself, Ed, uh, of many years standing and of great renown. You know how important editing is. Um, I did a bit of it uh, when I was in my 30s. I, I edited the arts pages of a, of a glossy mag, but I was not, it was only a part-time job. But working with editors um, on my books, good editors, has been such a help to me. Um, it's such an important process, Um the, the cliche that less, less is more is unfortunately true because it's paring things down, getting them shorter and you know tighter and leaner. Um, it, it's it's the thing that's going to make the book better. You know, you're gonna you might have to lose some of your wonderful sentences, your wonderful phrases, but actually, it's going to make the book better. And what um, what's the most you've ever had to cut out? I, I spoke to a novelist a while ago who said he'd, he'd had to cut out something like an entire... Um, I mean, it was, it was about 30,000 words, I think. He'd, he'd oh, my God, this, really? Uh, part of his novel that just he just couldn't... You know, it had just gone off in its own direction. And he had so, you know, that's a lot of work that has to... I know, could... I, I would... My blood would run cold if I had to cut 30,000 words. Um... Oh God, I've never, I've never cut more than about five thousand, you know, in total from a book. I mean, these are very small, you know, little incisions. I mean, I admire somebody who can say, you know, I basically ditched twenty, thirty thousand words. I remember Robert Harris was writing a novel, and he was interviewed on radio saying that he, he dropped about twenty thousand words when he realised he'd just gone up a cul-de-sac mm-hmm. with his plot. I'm, I think I much, must be a much more anal writer because I don't. I, I feel like I've. I, I, I couldn't go up one of those blind alleys with a, with a book. Sometimes you you know you, you're you're writing in a kind of free form way because you're not absolutely sure where, where where it's going. Particularly at the beginning when you start a book, you think, is this you know what is this what is this book about? Um, but you know that again. That's the the one of the advantages of working slowly, which is you know five hundred words a day. There's not much chance of you going completely <laughs> off piste. You know, it's like it's little increments of 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 narrative, and you, 
it's almost like you sort of grow a book in a way. You 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 don't splurge it all out. You just kind of put it together bit by bit. Um, so yeah, hats off to the guy, to the woman who who can who can cut thirty thousand words. But I I couldn't. And how do you know what to cut? Is it just a just a sixth sense, or do you? It's an instinct. Yeah, it's an instinct. Um, sometimes you know you feel the sentences aren't working. It's clunky. It's it's just you know it, it's your inner ear. You've got to trust your inner ear. Um, sometimes you think, well, this scene just isn't working, and it's it's just it's boring or it's it's not it's not doing what it should do um I, I think with cutting i think that comes with experience actually um my first novel uh, the rescue man which came out in 2009 is too long i think i think it's still too long i had a very good editor on it but when i occasionally look at it again i feel there are things I should have cut. I could have made it leaner. I could have made it go quicker. And I'm sorry, I didn't. You know, it's not, it wasn't a disaster. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not massively overlong. It's not sort of, you know, it's not an 800 pager, but it's, it's, it, it could use some cutting. And like I said, the best editors know, and they will help you. Okay. What's your fourth rule, Tony? The fourth rule is, it's related to the third rule, actually. And it's, Remember, your book is for a reader, your readers. You're not just writing for yourself. People talk about books as, you know, some writers talk about books as uh, writing as a kind of therapy. It's not therapy. It's not self-help. Um, you are writing for yourself, but you are you are mainly writing for other people. If, if, if other people aren't reading it, then what's it for? Um, do you have a specific reader in mind? Do you write for a specific person, specific individual? I often ask myself if I do. I, I used to think it was somebody like me who was maybe sort of, sort of young, slightly younger than me. When I, when I wrote film criticism, it was for the independent. So I had a sense that nobody was reading me at all. And I was writing actually for possibly for other film critics. Um, though I'm not sure. I I'm not... I'm not sure I did. I think I was, I had a vague idea of an audience out there. Um, I, I'm not sure, Ed, actually, to be honest. I don't know who, 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 who my readers are. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that there are, there are a few of them at the moment who are enjoying Klopp. It, it seems to be selling quite well. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's my first and probably my very last book that's ever going to be sold in a supermarket. Uh, all praise to Tesco and um, uh, Asda, by the way. Um, I don't know. It's 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 just one of those things. Sarah Waters, the great novelist Sarah Waters, said, "You you should think of yourself as a kind of running a kind of fairground when you start a book. This is a this is a novel she's talking about. Um, you know, it, it's like a fairground ride for a reader. You strap the reader into the car. You start up the machinery. You." whiz or you trundle them along through many scenes and surprises and different scenarios and you do it at what she calls a finely engineered pace again that's something you know that's a great skill that is a, it's a craft that you know and I think it's something that you learn 
it's not something that you just falls into your lap as a skill. It's it's a technique that has to be learned. Um, a talent, it's talent really. And as Nabokov said, you know, there is only one school of writing, and that is the school of talent. Where that comes from, who knows? You can be taught technique, but you can't be taught talent. And your fifth rule. My fifth rule is more. It's more of a sort of uh, life rule. It's not exactly about writing. It's stay off social media. Um, I, re I realise that this is probably belated advice to many people, but I think social media in general tyrannises people, tyrannises writers and stops them from writing. It eats into your writing life and debauches it, actually. It debauches your judgments and debauches your opinions. Um, what's the solution? If you have opinions that you can't bear not to express then put them in, in uh, a diary, put them in a journal, keep a, keep a diary. Um, I've been keeping a diary for nearly 20 years and it's not brilliant at all. It's in fact, it's quite boring in parts, but it's so useful after a while because you can, when you look at it again, the years sort of enhance it and you find interesting things in it actually. Um, when I was writing the clock book, for instance, I realised, I, I hadn't realised how much I'd written about Liverpool and about Klopp. And I thought, well, this is great. I can just sort of quote some of this stuff. And it has an immediacy and, you know, a contemporary uh, resonance too, because this is what I was thinking at the time. So that excerpt in the book where I actually talk about Klopp coming to Liverpool on October the 8th and my having a dream on about him on, on the night of October the 9th is absolutely true. Um, I woke up and said to my wife, um, yeah, I've had the most amazing dream about Jurgen Klopp. I was actually playing for him. And for some reason, I was wearing a cashmere jumper. You know, who, who knows why? You, th this is the kind of thing that, that, that happens in my dreams. And he came up to me and said, he touched my sleeve and said, ah, nice. And I think I said, thanks boss um so yeah it's it's a very useful thing a diary and it's a good discipline um it's a good thing to have um to be able to refer to it and to just to discover what your other selves were like down the years rather than put it out there on social media where people will just tear into you and you'll be pissing around having arguments i think that is honestly a better use of your time right because you haven't said you haven't been shy about using social media for the clock book have you i mean i i uh i saw you i saw this rule and then i and then i had a look at the book and the book is full of things like uh, uh the sentence where you say i finally accepted my clop obsession when i found myself watching 20 minute excerpts of his, of his press conferences at dortmund i don't <laughs> speak any german it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah level of yes that was that was incredible um i really did do that um i found myself you know when i'd exhausted every other um liverpool press conference I, I decided to go back and see what he was like at dortmund and the hair is a bit longer the glasses are a different style but God, he's having fun. I don't know what he's saying, but you can tell he's really teasing the press and he's teasing the guy, his press officer called Joseph something. Um, and 
Yeah, I was just watching goggle-eyed and thinking, you know, this 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 guy's wonderful. I mean, if he's if he's this funny in English, can you imagine how great he is in German? Um, so yeah, it was that was when I realised that I was pretty much lost to my Klopp obsession. Really, I, I couldn't, I could no longer help myself if I was actually following him in German. <laughs> Have you ever met him? I've never met him, um, no, but the book is translated into German and my German translator, a, a nice man named Marcus, um, said that he's going to, um, he ha- in fact, he has sent copies to Klopp's manager. So who knows, maybe one will get through to him, wh- whether he wants to read it or not, I don't know. I, I, won't, I won't torment myself with the idea that he will or he won't um but it'd be nice to think that he might just have a look at it i don't know whether he i don't know whether klopp is a great reader he he looks he sounds like a very literate man but he never actually talks about um what he's been reading he's he's got a great sort of he's got a very wide sort of vocabulary as a as a as a speaker but i don't know i don't get the sense that he has you know he's got lots of books on the go I feel the Venn diagram between uh, football managers and um, in, enthusiastic readers it has a very, very small intersection. Yes, <laughs> I'd agree with you. <laughs> and uh, and you have a, a, a new book out, uh, a new novel out fairly shortly. What's that called? I do, yes. I've got um, a, a book out about, um, it's, a, it's a novel called London Burning, and it's it's about... It's set at the uh, in the during the winter of discontent, and it's a basically a it's a, a four part story, four different characters who are strangers at the beginning and meet during the narrative. Um, it's about the end of the nineteen seventies and about the end of the social contract. Um, your 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 younger viewers probably won't remember Mrs. Thatcher's accession to power, but that's actually when the books the this novel ends on this um, sort of epochal moment uh, when British society was about to change forever. Um, in fact, looking back now on that time, which was May 1979, that, that election when she got in and vanquished Labour with a landslide, it, it's funny because now you, one, one thinks of that government almost as a sort of as being almost quite temperate and decent and committed in compar- in comparison with what's happening at the moment. You know, it's, it's, it's funny how times change. But Thatcher seems to be a kind of... She almost seems a kind of admirable figure next to the people that are running the place now. Quite. Well, I very much look forward to that, and I urge everybody uh, to read uh, Klopp, my... Liverpool romance. I don't think one needs to be either a Liverpool fan or even a football fan to enjoy it. It's a really likeable, charming, warm, and uh, just a magnificent book. I loved every word of it, and uh, I wish you every success. Tony, thanks for sharing your five rules of writing. Thanks, Ed. That's great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 